Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Bowles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Glayhold Bowles LLP's podcast, Building Insight. My name is Jacob McClellan, and I am joined by John Paul Ventrella. And we are both associates here at Glayhole Bowls. Hello, John Paul. Hey, Jacob. So, John Paul, today we are going to be talking about uh, some of the recent legislative developments stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic and what sort of impact those developments have had and will continue to have on the construction industry, both provincially and nationally. Um, in doing so, John Paul, uh, we're going to be focusing on some of the province's closure of non-essential workplaces, some of those orders, uh, as well as the recent suspensions of certain limitation and procedural time periods and the impact uh, that that legislation has had for uh, various um, construction actors. Um, but before we begin, uh, we want to note that this podcast is being recorded on Monday, April 13th, 2020. And the reason why we highlight that is that many of these issues are evolving as we speak. Uh, and it's a very fluid situation, as our listeners will appreciate. Uh, so it's important to check back for updates, uh, whether it be through our website or other information hubs. Um, but that's just something to keep in mind as we move forward. Um, so, John Paul, uh, before we launch into the two topics that uh, I just raised, why don't we just talk briefly a little bit about uh, the relevant legislation? Thanks, Jacob. And so for the purpose of this podcast, we want to focus on two important regulations that were passed by the province of Ontario that directly impact the construction industry. Um Ontario's Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act provides the province with a list of powers in emergency situations like the situation that we currently find ourselves in. Um, the two particular regulations that we want to discuss are Regulation 119-20, which was passed under Section 7.02 sub 4 of the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. And that regulation deals with the closure of places of non-essential business um, and the second regulation we want to specifically deal with is Regulation 73-20, uh, which was passed under Section 7.1 Sub 2 of the Emergency Management and Civil Protections Act. And that regulation uh, deals specifically with the suspension of limitation periods in the province of Ontario. And uh, this topic has the potential to significantly impact uh, many proceedings under the Construction Act dealing with liens, holdback, and other crucial steps. So we want to address that uh, head on today. Um, and so if, if, if you will, Jacob, maybe I'll turn the mic over to you now and we can discuss uh, Regulation 119.20 and the closure of non-essential places of business in Ontario. Yeah, thank you, uh, John Paul. I, I'd be happy to. Uh, so as our listeners uh, will no doubt be uh, very familiar with, last month the province of Ontario ordered uh, for the first time mandatory closure of all non-essential workplaces effective March 24, 2020 at 11.59 p.m. 
And the province did this pursuant uh, to the act that John Paul was just talking about, and that is the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. Now, with that, the province also carved out some broad exemptions, and uh, most businesses performing construction work were included in the essential services list and were actually therefore permitted to continue operating. Now, uh, at first glance, this would seem like a positive thing for the construction industry, um, but I think it's safe to say that the majority of stakeholder opinion was that these carve-outs went too far and that some of these projects that were allowed to stay open or operational uh, were subject to certain health and safety concerns, productivity issues, and cash flow worries. So fast forward to April 3rd, 2020, and this is when the province of Ontario updated its list of essential workplaces and ordered for the second time closure of non-essential businesses, but this time included most construction sites across the province of, on, of Ontario, effective April 4th, 2020, at 11.59 p.m. And the list of exceptions this time around was much, much narrower. Uh, and it includes construction projects and services associated with healthcare sector, uh, construction projects and services required to ensure safe and reliable operations of critical provincial infrastructure. The key word in that particular provision is provincial infrastructure, as well as critical industrial activities such as maintenance and operation of petrochemical plants and the production of medical devices and other products directly related to combating COVID-19. Um, also allowed to stay open and operational were or are uh, residential construction projects where certain permits had already been granted, as well as renovation projects where work uh, was started on or before April 4th, uh, 2020. So that's something to keep in mind. And then uh, most recently, last Thursday, April 9th, 2020, the province of Ontario further amended this list by adding an additional category and that is uh, construction projects that are due to be completed before October 4th, 2020, and that would provide additional capacity in the production, processing, manufacturing, or distribution of food, beverages, or agricultural products. Uh, so as we're seeing, this is an evolving list, uh, which seems to be changing almost by the day as stakeholder input uh, continues to trickle in. Thanks, Jacob. And now knowing what we know about Ontario and the types of work that ha have been limited and not limited, uh, do we have any idea of what other provinces or territories are doing with respect to the continuation of construction work? Yeah, thanks, John Paul. That's a good question. So uh, what we do know is that uh, Quebec has adopted a similar approach uh, to Ontario's and has limited all construction projects and activities to those uh, high-risk infrastructure projects, such as dams, the construction of dams, let's say, um, management of hazardous and radioactive waste, as well as certain emergency and safety repairs. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a lot of the other provinces, including British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, 
Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, uh, as well as the territories, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut, uh, have all ramped up certain health and safety requirements for sure. Uh, but there's no imminent shutdown of any construction projects like we've seen in Ontario and Quebec. So something to keep an eye on. Those things may change as uh, obviously this this situation progresses. But uh, as it uh, as we see it right now, it's it's Ontario and Quebec that are um, really uh, taking uh, what what I would. Uh, consider is uh, proactive steps in 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 curtailing the activities and and the and the projects that are uh, allowed to operate uh, for the time being. That is. So now that we've talked a little bit about uh, the lists of essential workplaces that have been rolled out by the provinces and particularly the province of Ontario and how we have interpreted those lists and how uh, those um, within the construction industry have interpreted these lists. I want to talk about uh, two particular questions that uh, seem to uh, have arised uh, or are beginning to arise, and that is the first is, is my project considered an essential workplace? Uh, and the second is, what if work on my project continues when it's not supposed to? Uh, and in dealing with that first question, the answer, unfortunately, isn't isn't that clear. And that's because the exemptions are not crystal clear and arguably still leave some gaps in terms of what construction activities can and cannot continue. Uh, and, and for example, we know that certain activities such as, let's say, private sector commercial construction can't continue. Uh, there still remains to be a lot of uncertainty as to uh, what other work can continue. Let's say, for example, certain municipal infrastructure projects. What, which of those projects can continue and which of those projects are considered essential in light of these orders? And this has led to uh, a bit of a game of chicken, let's say, between owners and contractors and subcontractors in terms of who accepts the risk of either continuing or suspending the work. And that's especially the case when there are different contractual payment obligations stemming from those scenarios. Uh, and it also seems to leave, uh, or certainly leaves contractors in a bit of a tenuous position, I'd say, um, when, for example, an owner asserts that the project is allowed to stay open, but there are obviously subcontractors that have already suspended their work due to health and safety concerns associated with COVID-19. So the key takeaway uh, from all of this is that each of these projects likely need to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, and many of them already have. And careful attention needs to be paid to which exemption applies, if any. This list is evolving. There is no blanket interpretation and each project is different from one another. So um, the takeaway is that, unfortunately, these projects likely need to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Thanks, Jacob. And, and what if someone or a company wants to suspend the work? Uh, they believe that the work they're, they are performing is uh, a non-essential service. What, what would they do in the circumstances? I'm just curious. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of shutting down the work, I think it's advisable for 
whichever party, whether it be the owner or contractor or subcontractor for that matter, uh, to clearly set out its reasons for doing so and obviously uh, reserving all rights contractually or otherwise to certain essential terms such as extensions of time, payment or non-payment. And one other thing that should be noted is that uh, within these provincial orders um, where there are lists of work that can continue, um, there, it has specifically been set out that construction and maintenance activities necessary to temporarily close construction sites is allowed. And this is so as to allow the projects to wind down. Now, there are effective dates where these orders have gone into force, and I imagine that there will be uh, additional orders um, in the future. But the, the province has recognized that just because of the sheer size of some of these projects, you, you can't just close the gates and put the locks on it. There are, um, there are resources, there are equipment, there are safeguards that need to be put in place. Uh, and, and the province has, has clearly recognized that. Uh, so it should be noted that certain activities that are necessary to wind down these projects uh, are allowed. So now that Ontario has published their uh, lists of services that can and cannot continue under these emergency orders, um, is there any idea of what the penalties that parties may face are um, if they disobey these orders and continue working um, even if they are deemed a non-essential service? Any comments on that, Jacob? Yes, certainly, uh, John Paul. This is uh, this is obviously something that we've looked into, and I think uh, a lot of people that we've spoken with uh, are a little surprised to learn how significant these penalties are. So, pursuant to Section Seven of the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, a director or officer of a corporation that violates the essential services list regulation may be fined up to $500,000 and imprisoned for up to a year. And a corporation can be fined uh, up to $10 million for each day of the contravention. So what this means for contractors is that they bear a significant risk of continuing to work when they shouldn't be. Um, however, there seems to be, uh, well, at least two ways of um, protecting yourself if you are a contractor. And the first is to get a direction uh, from whether it be the owner or a contractor above you in the construction pyramid as to what their interpretation of the list of essential workplaces is, whether or not this project falls within one of those exemptions, and get that in writing. And the reason why that's important is because not to say that this is um, this is a this is a seal by any means, but um, if, if an issue was to arise at a later date, at least the direction or the comment is coming from more than just one party. Uh, and, and the second um, potential way of protecting yourself, if you are a contractor or a subcontractor, is writing. Uh, to the um, owner or the contractor, whoever it may be that's above you in the construction pyramid, 
reserving your right to claim for indemnification for any fines or penalties that are levied, levied against you for working in those um, circumstances. So uh, those are two ways in which perhaps a contractor or a subcontractor um, may be able to protect itself when it's feeling a little bit uneasy, obviously knowing about these penalties and that they are out there. Uh, and on the other hand, as discussed, there may be other reasons for concluding that it's appropriate to stop work, even if uh, the the predominant opinion or view is that the construction is legally permitted to continue. Uh, and in that case, um, the issue of noncompliance um, uh, doesn't come up. Better safe than sorry, if you will. One other uh, point that I wanted to, to talk about just briefly uh, has to do with Ministry of Labor inspections. Now, we've heard uh, about projects that have been deemed essential, but have nonetheless been ordered to shut down due to occupational health and safety contraventions uh, identified by the Ministry of Labor. And the takeaway from this uh, is a practical one. And it's uh, that just because a construction project or an activity has been deemed essential doesn't mean that the owner or contractor is off the hook and is not required to take additional steps so as to ensure um, good infection control practices. Um, Obviously, uh, social distancing, ensuring that workers are adhering to social distancing is one thing. Hygiene is another. But uh, it's certainly within the um, prerogative of the Ministry of Labor to order these sites to shut down if it finds that some of these practices are not being adhered to. So just something to keep in mind um, when uh, the work is ongoing or a project or activity has been deemed to be essential, uh, there are other uh, requirements that the contractors uh, ought to be following. Uh, so with that, I'm going to hand it over uh, to you, John Paul, and, and we can shift gears here uh, a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about uh, the suspension of limitation and procedural time periods, because I know our listeners uh, will be interested in hearing about that. Thank you for that, Jacob. Uh, some very interesting points made with respect to um, the essential and non-essential uh, projects that can and can't be continued in the province. And uh, I'm sure our listeners were pretty um, happy to gain some valuable insight on those issues. Um, the second issue we want to jump into today is another pressing and, and timely issue that seems to be changing um, fairly quickly, and that deals with suspension of limitation and procedural time periods. So as I set out um, earlier in this podcast, Ontario passed Regulation 73-20 um, on March 20, 2020, and that was passed under Ontario's powers pursuant to the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. And, and the express wording of that regulation, which is, is important to this discussion, so I'll, I'll recite it here, is as follows. Any provision of any statute, regulation, bylaw, or order of the Government of Ontario establishing any limitation period shall be suspended for the duration of the emergency and the suspension shall be retroactive to Monday, March 16, 2020. And section two of the regulation set out that any provision of any statute, regulation, rule, 
bylaw or order of the government of Ontario establishing any period of time within which any step must be taken in any proceeding in Ontario, including any intended proceeding, shall, subject to the discretion of the court, tribunal, or other decision-maker responsible for the proceeding, be suspended for the duration of the emergency. And again, that section was made retroactive to March 16, 2020. So as you can imagine, as a result of Ontario passing this significant regulation, um, there was serious discussion among stakeholders in the construction industry as to how this regulation would impact um, the various players in the industry. And, and many, quite frankly, believe that Ontario ought to have excluded expressly the application of this regulation to the Construction Act. And that would have followed suit with provinces such as Alberta, who did carve uh, their Builders' Lean Act out of a very similar regulation in that uh, province. Um, And, and, you know, out of the discussions, it seemed that the major discussion centered around simply confusion as to how the regulation would be applied. Um, And many of our clients and, you know, many industry stakeholders had a number of interesting questions about how their business would be impacted by the passing of this regulation in Ontario. The regulation was in force from March 16, 2020. um, And then after much speculation and commentary on how the regulation was going to impact the construction industry, on April 9, 2020, the province advised the public that the emergency order had been amended to lift the suspension of limitation periods and procedural time periods under the Construction Act. So according to the Ministry of the Attorney General, the suspension would be lifted on April 16, 2020, in order to give the industry the adequate time to prepare for the changes. The Ministry also advised that once lifted, parties would have the same amount of time to meet a deadline that had been remaining before the suspension began on March 16, 2020. So that's interesting because as I'm going to get into uh, a little bit later, Jacob, the fast paced changes we're seeing um, with respect to this regulation and how it's applied remain somewhat unclear. And, and so, you know, the fact that the suspension would be lifted and that parties would have the same amount of time to meet a deadline uh, that they had remaining before the suspension began in March 16, 2020, creates some uncertainties. Right, John, John Paul. And, and you had mentioned that um, it, it seemed almost instantaneous that there was concern uh, when this uh, legislation came out that the Construction Act was not carved out like it was in, let's say, Alberta. Are you uh, or were you surprised uh, when you found out how quickly um, the Ontario government um, made that amendment? Because I know uh, some of the stakeholders um, uh, were. I, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that. That's a good question, Jacob. Yeah, uh, I was pleasantly surprised that Ontario um, took such swift action to amend or to lift the regulation from applying to the Construction Act. And, and the reason being is that there were some really serious implications of the application of that regulation to the Construction Act. And, you know, while lifting has addressed some of those implications, there does still remain a, a gray period of the 30 days between March 16, 2020 and April 16, 2020, where still uh, questions remain as to how that will impact the construction industry. And with that being said, maybe I'll jump right into um, the regulations' impact 
on construction liens and the preservation and perfection of liens. So as everybody in the construction industry knows, the Construction Act mandates very strict timelines for when liens can be preserved and perfected. And Sections 31 and 36 of the Act set those timelines out. Serious debate arose regarding how and and to what extent the regulation would apply to suspend limitation periods for preserving and perfecting construction liens. And and we're going to discuss that a bit later, but we're also concerned about the implication that a suspension in preservation and perfection of liens would have on the flow of funds in a project, uh, given the uncertainty that would result with respect to holdback obligations. So two very important pieces of lien legislation, obviously. Um, In reviewing the express wording of the regulation, uh, there was uncertainty with respect to, one, whether the time period set out in Section 31 and 36 of the Act were limitation periods, uh, per se, that fell within the scope of subsection 1 of the regulation, which deals specifically with limitation periods, or if the time periods referenced in Section 31 and 36 of the Act were merely steps in a proceeding or in an intended proceeding, which would fall within the uh, ambit of subsection 2 of the regulation. And it it seems that with the recent amendments to the regulation by the Ontario government um, and the lifting of any possible suspension limitation periods applying to the Construction Act, this distinction may not be that important going forward. However, it it must be remembered that there's still this 30-day time period between March 16 and April 16 that we we need to really turn our mind to uh, for our clients to ensure that they take the steps necessary to protect their interests. And, and I go back to Meg's notice um, uh, when they advised the industry that they'd be lifting the regulation with respect to the Construction Act, where they stated that parties will have the same amount of time to meet a deadline that had been remaining before the suspension began on March 16, 2020. But the simple fact is that we cannot be certain at this time as to whether or not the suspension actually applied to lean periods at all when it was in force. Uh, there's no real clear answer to that. So, you know, the best advice we can give and I think lawyers would give in the circumstances is that you should take every step possible to preserve and perfect liens in accordance with the strict provisions of the Construction Act as if you were operating in the regular course and as if the regulation was never enacted. Um, and, and what the industry seems to be saying about this point is that if it's not possible to do that, then you may be able to rely upon a suspension for the 30-day period to justify why your lien uh, was not preserved or perfected in time. But the consensus is that people shouldn't rely upon that uh, unless absolutely necessary. Uh, John Paul, one question that uh, that we've been faced with, and, and it's a practical one, is, you know, given all of the safeguards that have been put in place, social distancing, the closing of various uh, businesses as well as the courts, um, what sort of impact does that have on, uh, you know, the ability to, let's say, give a written notice of lien? Uh, register a lien or perfect a lien by serving and filing a statement of claim and uh, registering a certificate of action because certainly there are you know practical uh, you know obstacles that that arise from that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jacob. Uh, there are obstacles 
with respect to, you know, taking the steps to preserve and perfect liens, um, you know, that are more challenging than they may be in the normal course of things. But we have to remember that construction liens can be registered electronically at land registry offices. That statement of claims can now be issued um, electronically. And, and so these me- methods and this technology allows parties to, you know, preserve and perfect liens. Um, additionally, uh, there was some issue regarding whether or not or how uh, a lien would be preserved in the scenario where you couldn't register the lien on title to a property. And that, you know, typically arises when you have um, an owner of property being a municipality. And, and in response to that, in response to those challenges, I think the municipalities have done a, a pretty good job at setting criteria in place to allow for service on the clerk um, of the municipality. So in this regard, a lot of the city or town websites have have implemented um, electronic forms that can be filled in that would satisfy the service requirement in these circumstances. Um, each town is different, so I would let you know that you should check with the uh, specific jurisdiction where you may be attempting to preserve a lien uh, for the particular instructions. But I do know that, for example, the city of Toronto has a fairly comprehensive electronic form that can be filled out and submitted. So make sure you do look at the appropriate jurisdiction and you can preserve your liens in that way. The next important topic that I think we should address in this podcast, uh, Jacob, is the release of holdbacks. So as I mentioned, um, one of the really important questions that had been a brought up by various uh, industry stakeholders with respect to the uncertainty of the regulations application to liens was the impact that it would have in relation to holdback requirements. So section 22.1 of the Construction Act states that each payer upon a contract or subcontract under which a lien may arise shall, and an important term is shall, retain a holdback equal to 10% of the price of the services or materials as they are actually supplied under the contract or subcontract until all liens that may be claimed against the holdback have expired or been satisfied, discharged, or otherwise provided for under this Act. Section 26 of the Construction Act goes on to say that each payer upon the contract or a subcontract shall, again, shall, make payment of the holdback the payer is required to retain by subsection 22.1, so as to discharge all claims in respect of that holdback, where all liens that may be claimed against that holdback have expired or been satisfied, discharged, or otherwise provided for under this Act. So with parties uncertain as to how or if the suspension of limitation periods apply to the preservation and perfection of construction liens, deciding whether to release holdback became problematic, obviously. So in the first scenario, if strict timelines for liens were suspended by the order or regulation, then during the duration of the suspension of the limitation period, an owner would be responsible to retain holdback funds in order to protect itself under the Act. And if they didn't do that and were to release holdback funds uh, prematurely, they may be subject to having to pay those amounts twice. Obviously, uh, a situation that payors would not want to find themselves in. On the other hand... If the strict timelines for lien were not suspended by the order, then the act is clear that a payor shall release holdbacks. And so 
you know, if if it is found down the road that a payor was arbitrarily withholding the payment of holdbacks, then there could be a uh, risk for um, sanction from the court for such conduct. But again, you know, that's down the road and each case would depend on its particular facts. Um, but I think the lesson that comes out of all this is that there's clearly a gray area here. Um, and, and there's different approaches that, you know, various industry stakeholders have set out as to how to address these gray areas. Um, the first, uh, there's many people commenting that it's best practice for a payer to maintain the holdback and protect itself until the government or the court clarify the effects of the regulation or the state of the emergency is lifted. And, and the risk here, as I said before, was always that in the future or down the road, a court could find that an owner was in breach of their obligations to release holdback uh, because of the shall language in, in the act. Um, other people have suggested the possibility of payors entering into irrevocable written formal releases or indemnifications uh, from subcontractors, contractors, suppliers, etc. cetera. Uh, the real risk here is one that especially in large projects, it may be difficult to identify all of the parties who are entitled to uh, claim liens for materials and services. And there may be risks associated with the wording and language of releases and indemnities that will result in litigation in the future. So there's significant risks with both options. Right, John Paul. Now, um, obviously, I, I think that you had mentioned that some of these risks or at least concerns have been alleviated to a certain extent by the amendment. Uh, but what sort of concerns do you have or uh, what sort of issues do you see arising going forward? That's a great question, Jacob. Uh, thanks for that. And, and I think the real concern for myself uh, and many others is this 30-day gray period between March 16 and April 16, where we're uncertain as to how or if the regulation applied to the time frame set out in the Construction Act. Um, you know, this is something that as time progresses, as these issues are encountered at particular job sites and on particular projects, we'll gain more insight into. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, you know, as it stands, it appears that, you know, until we get some insight as to how um, or if the regulation applied to limitation periods, that the least risky course of action for an owner would be to add the 30-day period between March 16 and April 16 to their typical 60-day um, holdback countdown. Um, I mean, this practice will ensure that no unanticipated liens arise after holdback has been released. However, as we, we touched upon before, um, you know, there, there is also risks in holding the hold back for a period in excess of what is required under the statute. And, and, and unfortunately, the, the, the result or the outcome of those different risks, uh, we, we don't know the answer um, to those questions at this point. Um, the good news is that, you know, as of June 15, this shouldn't be an issue any longer as the 60 days from April 16 will have expired. And hopefully, um, things will go back to normal with respect to holdback and the Construction Act as a result of the regulation. But in any event, like we've said before, each circumstances is very unique. Um, one of the interesting things about these construction project matters is that they're very fact-specific, and when you're deciding on what steps to take, 
we would strongly recommend that you seek legal counsel and, and determine the best decisions in your particular circumstances. Yeah, uh, thanks, John Paul. That uh, Those are certainly uh, good points to make. Um, now, I, I know that we wanted to talk uh, briefly about Section 37 and specifically about how uh, the regulation uh, impacted the requirement of setting down or obtaining an order for trial. Why don't we do that? Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, so the next um, issue that we were hearing from industry stakeholders was what happens now with respect to setting matters down for trial. So as uh, you may or may not know, Section 37.1 of the Construction Act uh, states that perfected liens expire immediately after the second anniversary of the commencement of the action that perfected the lien, unless an order is made for the trial of an action in which the lien may be enforced or an action in which the lien may be enforced is set down for trial. There was, however, somewhat of a general consensus that Section 1 of the regulation would not apply to Section 37 of the Construction Act, since the Divisional Court has categorically stated that Section 37 is not a limitation period. Um, and, and for that principle, we, we are citing Krypton Steel, Inc., the Maystar General Contractors, Inc., which is a 2018 decision of the Divisional Court. However, uh, you know, parties were pretty clear that setting a matter down for trial is a step in the proceeding and so likely covered by subsection 2 of the regulation, which states that any provision of any statute, regulation, rule, bylaw, or order of the government of Ontario establishing any period of time within which any step must be taken in any proceeding in Ontario, including any intended proceeding, shall, subject to the discretion of the court, tribunal, or other decision maker responsible for the proceeding, be suspended for the duration of the emergency. And, and like with respect to holdbacks and the preservation of lien, the regulation has now been amended, uh, and, and it doesn't apply to the Construction Act, but we are left with the same gray area, which is that 30-day period between March 16 and April 16, and, and it, it stands that we don't know what a court will do um, with respect to the application of the regulation during that time period. Um, and an additional concern is because, well, it seems likely that setting a matter down for trial or obtaining an order is a step in a proceeding which falls under Section 2 of the regulation, the additional risk in finding yourself under that section is that any motion or relief sought from the court with respect to setting a matter down for trial under this regulation is subject to court discretion. And, and that's important. Um, and the reason it's important is that if a party relies upon the suspension of the limitation period or the steps in the proceeding for the 30-day period that we've identified, then the party will have to convince a court and the decision will be at the court's discretion as to whether the action was set down for trial on time. So with respect to Section 37, uh, we would just caution people to keep in mind this 30-day gray period to proceed to the extent possible as if the regulation was never passed uh, and make all best attempts to have matters set down for trial within the two years provided for under the Act. And this will avoid any uncertainty, especially related to the discretional provisions included in subsection 2 of the regulation. Thanks, John Paul. The question that we've been faced with, you know, given um, the limited nature in which the courts are operating and the fact that 
many of the physical filing offices have been closed. Um, how do we set these matters down for trial? Yeah, so at this time, uh, there are no real direct ways in which a party can set matters down for trial, given the restrictions uh, placed at courthouses as a result of uh, the spread of COVID. Um, we know that the court are hearing, you know, urgent matters and the list of matters that the court are hearing are expanding um, on a week to week basis. And, and everyone should make sure that they keep apprised of those matters that the court is hearing um, because these are changing. What we would say is with respect to setting matters down for trial, um, that parties take all necessary steps that they can to get uh, to use a sports analogy, the ball to the goal line. And so that would be preparing trial records, serving those trial records, even if electronically on opposing counsel, um, getting the action to a point where the record clearly shows that the party was, you know, ready, willing, able to set the matter down for trial. And, uh, you know, if, if a party takes those steps, then it's likely, uh, not certain, but likely that when going to the court to set a matter down for trial, once these restrictions are lifted, the court will agree uh, using their discretion that, you know, the, the matter can be set down and, and can be pushed ahead. Again, we would recommend um, with respect to steps that are in, as important as setting a matter down for trial that parties consult with their counsel and determine what's the best decision in their particular circumstances. And lastly, uh, maybe we'll just touch briefly upon the application of the regulation to the prompt payment system and adjudications in the Construction Act. Uh, as we all know, uh, the new Construction Act has introduced prompt payment to the construction industry in Ontario, which sets out, frankly, tight timelines for disputes regarding the payment of proper invoices. The Ontario Dispute Adjudication for Construction Contracts, or ODAC, does remain fully available to assist the public, adjudicators, and to manage adjudications. And they have advised uh, the industry that they have the capability of conducting video hearings for adjudications. So uh, what we can take from this is that, you know, payment still needs to be made if proper invoices are rendered, uh, and that if there's any disputes, that those disputes should be turned over to uh, the proper adjudicators and to ODAC, and, and so that money can continue to flow at these construction projects that remain ongoing. Great. Those are uh, those are all good points, John Paul. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. And again, we encourage you to check back for updates as obviously this is a very fluid situation and things are changing uh, almost by the day. Uh, and most importantly, stay safe out there. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.